Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my guest this time, his first time in the book club for an Eisner-nominated comic book letterer, as well as occasional writer and artist, it is the man of letters. Welcome to the book club, Jim Campbell. Hi Eamon, delighted to be here. It's been a pleasure listening to your podcast during the long, tedious hours of lockdown, so I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy to be on. Well, I'm delighted actually to have you here because I know we're going to get a chance to talk about um, the history of lettering, particularly with relevance to 2080 and other British comics. But before we get to that and your 2080 origin story, we do have some sad uh, news about another letterer and a sort of pillar of the 2080 fan community. We wanted to talk about Dave Evans, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, it was such, such uh, a shock completely out of the blue. Was it the very start of May, wasn't it? Now, guys, I guess it was early. Simultaneously, this month. Seems, yes. simultaneously seems so long ago, and yet also so immediate. And, and it was such a—I mean, I was—I was emailing Dave for you know about two weeks before the news came out. You know, and we were chatting away and exchanging lettering tips, and Dave was talking about. You know, we were both talking about how much we were looking forward to the convention season starting up again at some point on the other side of COVID. And you know, when would we be able to you know, meet up and go to the bar? And then just out of the blue, this, you know, and it was, uh, I mean, I think everybody was just being completely floored by it. Um, yes, I mean, he was a constant presence at UK comic book conventions, running the Future Quake Press table, selling the fanzines, Dog Breath and Zar Jazz. Always a delightful stop on any round of the convention hall because he was just, he had these, you know, I would go there, I would buy the, the latest issues, but he was always cheery and, you know, such a delight to be with. While at the same yeah, time... Yeah, genuinely pleased to see you whenever you saw him. He was genuinely pleased to see you. Always cheered you up when you saw Dave, even if you were in a bit of a, you know, you'd had a bad train journey up and you, you know, you sweaty and tired and a bit cheesed off with the whole thing and bailing your way through crowds. If you got to Dave's table, didn't matter who he was talking to, he'd always stop, he'd always say hello, he was always pleased to see you. I mean, he was just, just a delightful man to be around. He was. And then, of course, also a delightful man in terms of bringing on artists and writers through the fanzines, some of whom have gone on to bigger and, you know, um, more widely available things. And he was always, again, such a passion for that and keeping it going. And I know, you know, he would letter it occasionally. Did you do letters for some of those at all, Jim? Dave absolutely loved lettering, and so he would letter literally everything he could get his hands on. Um, but whenever he asked me, I would always, always say yes, and I would always find time for it. And the thing is, I mean, you're saying about you know about, about the, all the the talent that he and he and Rich Clements sort of nurtured and brought on. Uh, Matt Timpson said uh, when he posted a a, a a tribute art piece on social media, um, said uh, he said that he, he didn't think it was possible to overstate the debt that so many UK creators and the whole shape of the UK comic scene owed to Dave. And I think that's true because once, you know, once you moved away from that point where IPC used to do the, you know, all the boys comics and they had a stable and, you know, artists and writers would come in through what were considered the lesser titles and work their way up to sort of, you know, your battles in your 2080s. Once that went away, there were very few sort of proving grounds for new talent. And Zarjas and Dog Breath were, were, were more or less the mainstays now. And, and because Rich and Dave set the bar very high in terms of quality, you know, it, it did give you a good calling card to then, you know, go to someone like 2000 AD. You know, and I know, you know, that I, I, think, I think Dave sent the issues into the editorial uh, office every time they brought one out. 
and you know and i know that they read them and i know that they paid attention to them it was you know getting into one of the future quake books was was really quite a big achievement because as i say that the bar was very high and you know but they you know both rich and dave were, were very keen to sort of encourage talent it wasn't just like you know sifting through the slush pile and picking the best of it they, you know they were very very keen and dave especially would go for a long time coaching people and sort of say no this isn't quite right do it again basically yeah you know and a lot of people's careers really benefited from that i think being a great editor as well and um yeah. on the 2000 e forums because obviously everybody the facebook groups the 2000 e forums everybody who knew who'd met dave at a convention or had worked with him producing uh content for one of his publications was sort of like devastated by this news. Now, on the 2080 forums, there's a tradition of sort of sketch tournaments or uh, sketch themes, and I noticed you you set the last one off as a tribute, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, not the the normal sort of the rolling sort of process is that whoever wins, I mean, wins is it's not it's not like it's, it's a it's a a fierce competition, but there is a vote at the end of each month. Whoever wins gets to choose the theme for the next uh, sketch comp. And we were just, I mean, within sort of a couple of days of starting up a new a new competition when the, when the news came out about Dave. Um, and I just didn't feel, especially given that Dave entered it every month, you know, yeah. I didn't really feel that we could we could just go ahead as normal and, pre- and pretend everything everything was fine. So I thought, no, we'll do that. And um, and what uh, what we what I'm going to do is once that's uh, once that's run its course, which is it's sort of winding down now over the next week or so, um, we're going to I'm going to gather together all that artwork, and I've reached out to the uh, the pro community as well. Um, you know, we've had some amazing stuff coming from them. Going to get it all made up uh, into a little book via a print on demand service. Um, I haven't quite decided on the format yet, although I'm leaning towards the idea of making A5 and I'm seeing if I can make it look like, you know, Zajaz and Dog Breath, given that those meant so much to Dave. Just, just print out the one copy uh, and get that sent off to, uh, to Dave's family because I know not all of Dave's family engage with this comic side of stuff. You know, it's, it's, if you don't get it, it's, it's all a bit mystifying. Um, and I think it would just be, I don't know, I think it'd be nice for them to know just how much, how beloved Dave was in the comics community. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's a lovely thing. I know the for- we were talking about this before we recorded. The forum has done similar things for some of the greats when they've been unwell or whatever in the past, reaching out with these artists. Yeah, they did one for Carlos, they did one for Ron Smith. I think Ron, Ron was a bit unwell. Yes. And, of course, sad- neither, sadly, with us anymore. And now for Dave Evans and for his family. And, as you say, I saw, I think, on Twitter, Staz Johnson tweeted... His uh, strontium dog, which I think is for the project, and yeah, I also noticed that on the forum, Dark Jimbo, I think, had done a strip, which includes two characters we might be mentioning later on, Mister Sun and Mister Moon. Yes, yes, uh, that, that was that was very strange. Obviously, I mean, yeah, I I I, I picked this obviously uh, quite a long way in advance of, uh, of of the news about Dave coming out, and so that was that was very strange to be simultaneously going through. Going through the the the, the, the strong Jim Dog story with Mister Sun and Mister Moon and and, uh, and Dark Jimbo then pops up with this uh, this sort of conclusion to the Sun and Moon strip that he used to do for for Dog Breath, which was uh, just an odd little coincidence and very bittersweet to be honest with you. It's, uh... And you lettered that for the for the forum I saw. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I I, I, I did. Uh, I did well. I did my 
my my best uh, my best but somewhat imperfect uh, impression of uh, of Dave's bolt over one lettering style because uh, it just just seemed kind of appropriate to be honest with you because if it had been in uh, in dog breath then Dave would certainly have lettered it so it just seemed like like a nice thing to do to keep sort of a, a little bit of visual consistency with the with the strips that have been published. So um, check out the 2084 um, art competition, which is dedicated to Dave. As you say, you are producing the, the, the single hard copy, which will go to his family and hopefully also, as you say, remind them just how well loved he was by the comic book community, the 2000 AD community. Um, at the time of recording the family's Just Giving page for help with the funeral expenses to give him a good send-off, I think is still running and I will put a link in the notes. Um, I, in a way, I don't think we should shy away from saying, Jim, that um, it turns out, unfortunately, that this was a mental health problem. And just to remind everybody, particularly blokes in the comic book community, that it's okay at times to not be okay, but please talk to somebody about it. Please tell us. I, I, have, I, have, I have to admit, I mean, um, you know, I'm... I'm pleased that the, the family decided to, to to let that be known because it is important. And I mean, when I found it, the first thing I did was I, I, I reached out to friends of mine and I just said, look, you know, don't take this the wrong way. This, but, you know, this has happened to Dave, who's a friend of mine, and nobody saw it coming. You know, nobody saw it coming. His friends didn't know. His family didn't know. You know, like I say, I was, I was emailing him and having a right old chat and he was sending fine spirits and was looking forward to the future just two weeks before this happened you know and there was this burden that Dave seemed to feel he had to carry on his own and that's that's the worst of it to be honest with you because I don't think there's a one of us who wouldn't have stepped up if we'd known yeah and so I just emailed 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 or text all my, my especially my male friends because it is men who tend to do this is think that they've got to be strong especially you know, like you know Dave like a family man I think a big part of it is thinking you know I can't put this on my family. It's not, you know, it's my job to be strong for everybody else. And he just ends up shouldering this burden on his own and it's too much for him. And it's just, you know, it breaks my heart, to be honest with you. It's devastating. And we just, you know, we will put some links in the show notes. Conventions, when they restart, are not going to be the same without Dave at the Future Quake table. And... um yeah, you know, all of us raise a glass to Dave Evans, um, one of ours who's fallen, um, and he was just a lovely, lovely bloke. Yeah. Okay, Jim, let's move on to slightly cheerier subject. Let's get back to the the, the agenda, and we'll start with, because it's your first appearance, we'll start with your 2000 AD origin story and how you got started reading the prog. Well, it's, um, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm an old, old man, and um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm not, I wasn't quite in at the ground floor, but uh, I, I do have a very, very vivid memory at infant school of a, a friend of mine turning up in the playground, plastered in biotronic stickers from issue two. Wow! But the little bugger wouldn't let me read. Wouldn't let. Wouldn't <laughs> let me read his prog. Um, so I, don't, I didn't read issue two. I, I actually, I had to flick through the covers on Barney, and looking at the covers that I remember, because my uh, although we live in the middle of, well, I've well, barring a very early, um, I was born and. At the age of about four, I lived in Cyprus because uh, my dad taught in a forces school. All right. Um, and we, re- we were evacuated in 1973 when the civil war broke out and the Turks invaded um, and basically moved to the Midlands where my mum's family lived. But my dad's family was Scots. And so this entailed basically two or three times a year 
uh, me and my brother and my parents bundling into a car and driving up to the the wilds of Dumfries and Galloweyshire, which you know it's about it's, it's about seven hours because you, you can bomb up the motorway as far as the Scottish border. Um, but very shortly after that, you have to come off the motorway and spend. So, so it was about two and a half, three hours to the border, and then comfortably the same amount of time again on Scottish B roads, wending your way through to to, to rural Scotland. Um, which you know, I'm keeping two children under the age of ten quiet. It's a bit of a feat, uh, and I have this recollection of having been intermittently bought two thousand ads just to shut me up and stop me fighting with my brother on these interminable car journeys. Um, and so when I nip back through and I say I had a look through through the covers on Barney. And the first one I remember, I think, is it's Prog 8 or Prog 9. I should have written it down, but I forgot. Big Harlem Heroes, Artie Gruber with um with Giant in his sights on the front cover by Dave Gibbons. Pretty sure that's the first prog. And then there's sort of spotty ones over the course of about the next two years for um holidays and trips like they these 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 endless car drives to Scotland. And then I think I was, my dad, I imagine, bought me, I think it was Prog 102, which has a, a, a massive um, face of the Mekon on the front of it, Gibbons Dan Dare, uh, the Tully Gibbons Dan Dare. And my dad was uh, of an age to be an eagle reader of old, and I think it was just the, the sight of Dan Dare and the Mekon tweet, uh, tweaked a nostalgia button somewhere inside him. And so he bought me this, um, after which I then badgered my parents incessantly and offered to give up my Beano and Dandy socks if they'd uh, if they'd sub me to 2000 AD instead, which they did um, a couple of weeks later when I you know, obviously nagged them beyond their ability to endure. Um, and um, I, I know a Prog 104 plopped through the letterbox on a Saturday with a daily newspaper delivery, um, which was my first regular Prog as a, a reader, and that was it. I was in, in for the long haul from there. Uh, and obviously 104 is where the, the Strontium Dog Journey into Hell story kicks off. And it might be part of my ah, affection right. for it. Yes. It's obviously that uh, I, I think everything else in the prog was mid-run. So, you know, so we, we were quite a long way into the day the law died uh, in dread. And I think uh, I think Robo Hunter had, I think Robo Hunter had just restarted after the long break it took with Star Lord merger, or it was a couple of episodes. But more or less everything else was mid-story. Um, and whilst it wasn't exactly hard to pick up because, you know, they were very good about making sure that, you know, that, that you get a quick recap and stuff, it did feel kind of different to see there was one of the AO starts today. So you knew you were on the ground floor with it. So, Well, that would explain, hence, why you've chosen the book for today. Um, I'll just mention it is, you're quite right, it's Prog 9 had that Dave Gibbons, Artie Gruber aiming at the Harlem Heroes cover which is a great one. But let's jump forward to Prog 104. Tell us then, we've hinted at it, what book are we talking about or using as the basis of our discussion? Uh, we're, we're doing Strontium Dog, Journey into Hell, which uh, ran from 104 for 15 weeks and is available in Case Files, Strontium Dog Case Files number one, which is what I'm referring to while we're having this conversation. Yes, and I've got that on my desk here in front of me as well, the Strontium Dog Search Destroy Agency Files 1, uh, this is written by John Wagner and Alan Grant. Art, obviously, Carlos Esquera. Letters, John Aldrich, I'm going to be asking you about. Obviously, the editor at the time was Steve McManus. Um, it was also collected in an earlier trade, I think, Strontium Dog, the early, uh, the early cases. And it's been in one of the Ultimate Collection hardbacks from Hachette as well. So, Jim... First of all, I think obviously it's tied into your first proper prog, but why did why this particular story? It just doesn't 
doesn't get a, a huge amount of love, to be honest. I, I very rarely hear people single it out. And I mean, certainly, you know, I mean, I wouldn't argue, you know, that in the, the whole pantheon of Strontium Dog, it, it's up there with, you know, your portrait of a mutant or your ragers. But it's just, it holds a special place in my heart because it was it was the first thing that, you know, that, that sort, of, sort of held me with 2008. I had to sort of find my feet with all the other strips because they were all in the middle of runs, whereas Strontium Dog was sort of was there and, you know, and it's it's a, it's a great character, and um, also interestingly, I mean, this was just a, a thought that I, I genuinely I'd never had this thought before until until I was sort of making a few notes for this podcast, which is, I mean, Dread took quite a long time to click for me when I first started reading. I don't, I mean, obviously it didn't help. It was in the middle middle of a of quite an extended storyline um, at the uh, at that point, but I, I don't think I really sort of uh, I, it sort of became my sort of top thrill until much later on, more sort of, you know, um, the Black Plague and sort of some of that sort of stuff, right? Um, I understood it. But it struck me when I was just as I was thinking about it now that, that um, Dread's very much an outlier uh, in terms of British British comic book heroes. Um, Johnny's much more on model because we love an outsider and we love an underdog. Yes. And Dread's neither of those things, which I, I genuinely hadn't thought about this until now, and it really surprised me. No, he's neither of those things. Now, people always talk about Dirty Harry, but Dirty Harry's a maverick. Dirty Harry doesn't play by the rules. Whenever Dirty Harry does something, well, that's very Dread. It's usually when he's breaking the law or certainly bending the regulations, which Dread literally never does. You know, so he's not an outsider. He's not an outlier, a you know, maverick. He is absolutely the establishment which is very, very unusual. And so I suppose Johnny sort of fit in a bit more sort of um, the, the model that I was used to because he is an underdog, you know, he, he, you know, the the prejudice angle's quite, you know, it's it's not subtle, is it? I mean, you know, it, it's, it's it's very clearly, clearly, uh, you know, a, 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 a metaphor for racism. You know, that's, that's quite nice, you know, to be sort of served that up at the age of, uh, you know, I was 10. Yeah, I was, I was 10. Um, and it's, you know, it, it feels... For all the science fiction trappings, it feels much more in keeping with your your major easies and your, or even you know your your Charlie Bournes. You know these these people are underdogs or mavericks or both. You know, and although Johnny is you know very very competent, he exists in a system where he is by his very nature oppressed. You know, and you know that's right there on page one, you know, of the, of the story, you know, he's pulled over for a completely unfair traffic cop, traffic stop by a, by a prejudiced traffic cop. It's, it's, it's knowing nothing, nothing about the character. You're immediately introduced to him as being not just a strontium dog, but a strontium underdog. He's, he's a victimized minority, which is. And also I noticed in the very last panel of this story, when they return from where they've been, the the last panel is that they're getting abuse shouted at them, and then he, and Johnny says, "Oh yes, we're definitely home," because yes, yeah, they are, it's the same again. The first panel, the last panel, isn't it? Which is, which is very neat, and it's uh, sort of you know, we spent all this time escaping from you know everybody's worst nightmares just to end up basically right, but literally no progress in terms of his own position as, as say as this this oppressed underdog. Which, um, so Jim, give us. Give us a very brief synopsis. What is Journey into Hell for Strontian Dog? I mean, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it, it starts off very sort of straight science fiction-y um, for the first three episodes, actually. I was, it was, um, he's having run-ins with the, you know, prejud- mutant prejudice police, but he's trying to pursue a warrant against Fly's Eyes Wagner, um, who is a criminal that has had a bounty per, per, 
posted against him. And, and for those who are familiar with Strong Team Dog, he's a, the, the Strong Team Dogs are bounty hunters. They work for the Search and Destroy Agency. Basically, basically doing jobs that the police are thinking you know, can't be, it's too dirty or too tedious for them to do or too dangerous for them to do. And so he's pursuing this warrant against Fly's Eyes Wagner, um, which involves it as basically sort of a sort of you know, a chase chase shootout, very much in in the, the mode that you'd expect. Until Fly's Eyes goes to ground with his dear old dad, who by handy coincidence is also a, a, a an interdimensional uh, technology expert. And the first thing you, you, you sort of see about this is uh, as it Fly's Eyes deploys this dimensional technology as if it was a weapon, it's just like a hand grenade, and instead of blowing people up, they just sort of disappear, and everybody goes, "Oh, it's disappeared." But realising that he's cornered, he turns the technology on himself, disappears through a dimensional portal. Johnny Wolf and the Gronk, and I don't want to feel so down on cute sidekicks because the Gronk's, the Gronk's fantastic all the way through <laughs> this book, to be honest with you, um, have to follow him in order to pursue the warrant. And because Johnny's that kind of no-nonsense, always gets his man kind of guy, um, they go through the dimensional portal after him and end up somewhere very different. And it's a real sort of we're not in Kansas anymore moment when at the end of episode three, when they're suddenly surrounded by all this, you know, I mean, Carlos does, you know, wonderful future cities, but he also does wonderful, distorted, deformed, organic architecture as well. And you know, they find themselves in one of these these bizarre Carlos landscapes and say, so, so it's not in Kansas anymore. And it turns to they, they very quickly realise that they've arrived in a hell dimension. Indeed, yes, and it is literally the journey into hell for the for the characters from there. Now you mentioned we mentioned John Wagner and Alan Grant because this is sort of the start of the Wagner Grant partnership, isn't it? They first get together writing on this story, I think. Yeah, I mean, as I was going through, I was making notes, and there's sort of this every every once in a while, something you kind of go, "Oh, hello," you know, that that's something clearly that they they, they noted down in a file and came back to a bit later. Um, you know, that on page one, this says, Welcome to Sharpsville, home of the Umpty Man. And of course, Uncle Ump and his Umpty Candy pop up in Judge Dredd about a year and a half later. It's, um, and I mean, also, I mean, structurally, it reminds me of, of nothing so much as um, House of Damon from Eagle. Oh, right. Okay. In as much as it's very, I mean, it, it burns through plot, but it's very much sort of a self contained sort of one two episodes it's like we're going to do this bit for a couple of uh, episodes and then we do this bit for a couple of episodes we're going to change the scene or introduce a completely new set of uh, adversaries and it's 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 a a collection of fairly small largely self-contained sort of vignettes strung together on this one sort of quite strong theme it, it just just the way it's paced and the way it's structured did make me think uh, quite a lot of house of damon and um and it's also in, uh, you know, in, the, in the same sort of rather breakneck way that it burns through plot as well, which um, is, is, is nothing if not entertaining. You know, it, it's, you're never getting bored. No. Your journey into hell. And, and as, a ten, as a 10-year-old kid, that's pretty thrilling. You know, I mean, you know, you, you, you're raised on, you know, Victor and Warlord, which are, I'll be fine, honest with you, they were, they were worthy, but they could be dull. <laughs> they could be dull. They were, they were you know... All your, your, your stiff upper lip officers and your, your your jolly tommies and stuff, and you know, you, 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 then you get this, and it's 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 just mad. Um, and it, I noticed it's um, it moves onto the centre page, onto the centre pages with the arrival in hell as well. I mean, you know, you're confronted with this the last ep- of episode three. You're confronted with this <laughs> wonderful bit of Carl's architecture and a huge door saying all roads lead to hell. Uh, and then the next episode, you hit with a double page spread uh, where it stays for the rest of the the series. A shame, really, actually, that 
it's, it's about another five or six weeks before the good paper hit. Ah, um, right. It was, about, it, was about, it was Prog 110 that the, uh, the, when they, they had that brief period where they moved on to the much nicer paper and everybody got to do really nice colour for about six months until I, I, I have some vague recollection of hearing a story that essentially that either somebody had ordered the wrong paper or they'd had an overstock somewhere and they basically got given this, this nice paper and better printing process for absolutely free for about about six months and then uh, and then when when it came to, to the choice of either going back to the to the, you know to the loo roll or paying the extra for the for the printing they opted to go back to the loo roll but so i mean yeah so there is um i think about six or seven episodes in those those sent spreads moved to a much nicer color which is sadly not reproduced in the uh, the edition i've got but um were very much burned into my brain because you know i, I, I mean this isn't to, to sort of be disrespectful of any of the artists who are contributing because they're all fantastic to 2000 AD at this, at this period. But some of them, you could see the tradition in which they existed. So, you know, like we get, you'd have um, Dave Gibbons was regularly doing Dare at the same time. Uh, you know, you'd get Bolland coming on a dread. And these people are very strongly in the Frank Hampson, Dave, uh, Frank Bellamy, Dave Hampson, illustrative tradition you can see a line there whereas you know barring i, I didn't think i, I realized you know, that I, i'd seen carl's do war comics because things like battle and stuff weren't crediting their strips at the time sure but barring a few sort of rat packs and things this wasn't like anything i'd seen before you know it, carl's is coming from a completely different tradition you know uh, you know ron smith was doing a lot of dreads i mean mcmahon and gibson were doing stuff that was quite sort of you know tangential to the mainstream of British comics illustration. But, you know, most of the dreads were being handled very quickly by Ron Smith and Ron said very much, I mean, I love Ron Smith's work, but, you know, you could, again, you could see the tradition he was coming from, whereas Carlos was bringing all these European influence. It was a 10 year old who'd never seen a European comic. I was just absolutely, you know, what the hell is this stuff? And then, you know, getting these, these huge double page spreads, which he was, you know, quite happy to use. Um, and, you know, and had this, this very, this lovely way of, of sort of, rather than thinking, well, you know, I've got, 12 panels to get on it i'll put six on each page you know um he's quite happy to tuck a whole bunch of panels up the top and, and save himself a third of the double page spread to chuck in one of these amazing cityscapes or whatever he was choosing to draw that issue and it was really visually very arresting you know and obviously in a black and white comic kicking up every episode with a double page color spread tended to make an impression on you and it certainly does i mean you know we- to talk about Carlos's art a bit more for a moment, it is just, as ever, wonderful stuff from the master. Although he'd only been doing British comics for about five years, I worked out at this stage. He's quite. It still seems astonishing that he was early in his career, but yet... Yes, yeah, so it's so accomplished. I mean, you know... Yeah, it's just remarkable. And, of course, and, and Strontium Dog itself was less than a year old at this point. Um, from Star Lord, and then jump into the prog in '86 or prog '86. Um, it it just seems, but I know we've said this before. It was the strip that just hit the ground running, and of course for you it was a strip that you could pick up a, a comic, and just you were straight into it. You didn't need an, an awful lot of backstory. Um, you know, he's a mutant bounty hunter in a science fiction world, and you're away. Yeah, it's, it's it's very you know I mean I mean at that point you know, um, Wolf didn't have all his Viking backstory didn't matter you know he was just a, a, a big a big beardy guy who hit people which, yeah and, yeah and, and the Gronk's instantly accessible and it's um, but you know rereading it I've not I've not reread reread, uh, reread it for some time but rereading it as a as an aging man going, going quite quite a long way into middle age now um, 
you know, it's it's thoroughly entertaining. I mean, you know, it, yes, it's episodic. And I think, you know, if you stop and think about it too much, quite a lot of it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. But it's it's just, it's, it's like I say, it just it burns through plot at this breathless pace and doesn't really give you a chance to to let up. There, there, there aren't many sort of quiet contemplative moments in Journey into Hell. It just sort of, sort of rattles along and, and introduces a, a, a new threat every literally every couple of episodes, um, all of which, you know, set against these these astonishing backgrounds you know, and and with this this you know, Carlos is incredibly dynamic art. Um, I was just going to. There's a, a is it, which episode am I up to? <laughs> yeah, episode four. Is it episode four. And episode four. My 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 first note is if you uh, the the once you get past the double page spread, you've got the that's the, the first one in hell. So episode three is where they end up. You know, oh, right, at yes. the bottom they go through the dimension, jump at the bottom of the staircase, and then you get to. The big double page spread. The first thing I noticed was uh, if you go past that first centre spread, uh, when they've arrived in hell, uh, up there in the top uh, top right hand corner, you've got uh, you've got the, the many hands reaching in from off panel, which became a bit of a recurring Wagner Grant motif, as I recall. I mean, you certainly you certainly saw that in House of Damon. It was uh, Anderson a couple of times. Um, yeah. I think the haunting of Sector House Nine. It's it's quite a familiar little image that one. But I think it's the first time you see it. Yes, indeed. Yes. Oh, I can see it now, yeah. yeah. Like zombie hands or the hands of the dead yeah. coming in to grab them. Yeah, it's great. And as you say, it it burns through literally. They, they're on fire. There's a lake of fire. There's a boat. That, you know, <laughs> it's a hellish yeah, it's, journey, it's quite, it's isn't quite, it? It's quite, it's quite literal in its, its interpretation of hell. I was going to say, I mean, just very quickly while we're on these particular episodes, it's, it's when you go on to the next episode when Johnny comes to rescue the, the poor old Gronk who's on fire, um, that sort of strip across the top of the double page spread where he's running without the panel borders. Yes. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And you, you've got those, those, those three perspectives as well. Oh yeah. Got it um, there. Yes. And it's, and it's so easy to understand. You know I mean, I mean, Carl's that, that's three different panels, all drawn as one panel with changes of camera angle time. And it's, it's so dynamic and it's so well done. Um, and this sort of stuff, you know, I wasn't, you know, sitting there and analysing it at the time, but you can't help but be sort of, sort of swept up in it because it, it's, it's, it's got such action and such movement to it that it, it's just exciting to look at. It's an action sequence, and as you say, he's rearranged the pages panels in order for him to do that across the top of a double page spread, and it is just, yeah, it's just wonderful. This mo, this motion from one hand, left hand side to right, uh, uh, yeah. A sequence perfectly spelled out to us. And, of course, he also does that thing later on where he will find space to fit in a demonic rider on a demonic horse or several, um, which are just wonderful as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you very quickly get the impression that you know, Carlos is, you know, is one of those artists who can, you can put literally anything in the script and he'd draw it. He can draw uh, it, you know, yeah. And just, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Monsters, fine. Boats, fine. Big flying winged beasties, fine. Horses, fine. No problem. Yep. Yes, usually, usually we hear the stories of saying, please don't ask me to draw a horse. But no, Carlos, he can draw the horse. Yes. He does have that, as you say, it does feel quite European sort of depiction of hell in a way, you know, from possibly from classical painting. Um, some of the buildings, some of the landscapes, and then some of the riders on the horses literally holding their scythes as well. It's very, it is. And, and, and all, the, all, all these, these, these lump and twisted 
souls sort of inhabiting the backgrounds and be- bemoaning their lotter all the way through it as well. And, you know, and you can't blame them because, you know, if you're it's going to rain fire on you every day. It's uh, it's, it's, going to, it's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a bit of a bummer, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. We will come back to the story and the artwork, but I'm going to ask you an unusual question, which is to focus in on John Aldrich's uh, lettering for this particular story, and that's going to widen us out to talk about lettering in general. Um, do you, I mean is there anything distinctive that you notice about the lettering for this story? Well, I, I, I've never been able to find out um, whether there was a school of lettering right. in the U, in UK comics, but John Aldrich uh, and Peter Knight and Tom Frame all have this very similar, quite narrow, quite tall lettering style. You know, you, it's and it's curious to me because they they, they do all seem it's it's. You'd sort of imagine that maybe they were all shown how to do it by the same person, or maybe one of them showed the other two how to do it, because they are, they're not sort of, they, they all have their own quirks, as hand letters always did. But it is quite striking to me that, that, that three of their regular letters all had this very sort of, very tall, very thin way of doing it, which, you know, is probably just a, a reaction to the fact that, that, you know, back in those days, you, you, they, they, you'd get the crammed your plot in and you had to have an awful lot of thought balloons and captions explaining things that had gone on between panels because they were burning through story. You didn't have time to put a, you know, a bridging sequence in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And I noticed that he sort of, there's lots of lovely little touches where he sort of tries to actually incorporate the artwork uh, in, into the artwork. So there's a couple of ways you've got uh, got Carlos's fancy drawn fancy borders around uh, a thing, and, and the, uh, the the the, um, the panels, uh, the panel borders. So say if, if you sort of uh, skip forward, to just a bit. Yeah, we've had the, we've had the, the fire from raining down from the, the sky, and you skip forward through that episode. Fly's eyes gets blown up at the end of it and comes back to life almost instantly, which uh, yeah. I suspect is a writing a, a writing decision they may have regretted quite quickly because it's like, <laughs> if nobody can die, what exactly is the peril? So they have to come to something worse than death every single episode. But that double page spread that comes after that, if you look at uh, some of the uh, the speech balloons, either conform to Carlos's wacky panel borders or they they're cut out to fit them. I think. So if you, if you look at the same spread that I am, the one that immediately follows Fly's eyes getting blown to pieces. Yeah. Huge, the huge building down in the corner. That's the one. Uh, the left-hand yeah. corner. There's, there's, there's the preacher's face just up and slightly to the left of that. And you look at his speech balloon there. The top edge of it is, is Carlos's panel board, uh, irregular panel board. And yeah. that works really nicely. And I've not, I've not seen the original art for this page, but I've seen enough original art. And yeah, if you look at the, uh, the panel next to it, you've got Wolf's head popping up oh, through, the, uh, through the speech balloon. Yes. Um, and I, I, you know, I like that sort of stuff. And I, it, it, to be honest with you, I mean, as I've not seen the original page this, but I've seen enough original pages to know that although they would stick the lettering down, usually on a, a glue-backed sheet of, uh, of, of adhesive paper, and they'd letter onto that and physically stick the balloons on, if, like that panel with the preacher's face, there's no background to cover up, you've just got plain white space, they would quite cheerfully draw letters straight onto the page. Right. Oh, because okay. There was there was there was, op- there was open white space for them to do it. Yes. And so I, ma- I imagine you know that that was it was probably very easy to do that because you didn't have to then sit down and meticulously cut out a piece of adhesive back paper to fit the panel border because um, he could literally just take his pen and draw it straight into the page. Oh, that's interesting. No, right. I understand now. Yes. So they've got the stick on ones, but then they could literally litter a uh, letter onto the page. Take me back a bit, because I, as I said to you beforehand, I know, I know almost nothing about comic book lettering. Go back to pre 2000 AD. Um, 
60s and 70s British comics, where particularly, I think, the girls' comics, we would often see those typewritten um, lettering for speech bubbles. It's it's very it's it's very strange because um, you go back to Eagle, yeah, uh, you know, and Hampson and Bellamy were hand lettering their own stuff. Um, you look at newspaper strips from the sixties and seventies, and they were almost invariably hand lettered. And it's quite interesting because you can spot you know um, Aldrich and Tom Frame um, doing some of those you know Garths and all that sort of stuff. But then, for some reason, in the seventies, they moved on to this. This yeah, this this mechanical typeset lettering, which you say you saw in the girls' comics, which you saw in for several years at the start of Battle, and in action was done. You know, the whole of action was, which is you know two thousand AD's immediate forerunner was done that way as well. It was mechanically lettered um, because obviously I did that. Uh, I did that. Uh, that remap. They call it a remastering of Hookjaw from. Action. Oh, that's right. Uh, I remember strip, yes. for, for the very short-lived strip magazine, where uh, Gary, uh, basically, I, I lifted the old uh, machine lettering off it, re-inked the holes that that left in the page, and then put some new lettering on top. And, uh, and Gary Coldwell coloured them, and it looked fantastic. I mean, you know, not in, you know, immodestly saying about my lettering, but with but Gary did a wonderful job colouring, and it really looked like a new strip. It was fantastic. But um, I had a chance on Twitter a few years back. Um, I actually asked Pat, uh, Pat Mills, and when you were putting 2000 AD together, you know, at day one, in day one, you know, it was hand lettered from the start. Uh, I think actually, if you see the dummy, you know, there's that dummy that does the rounds every once in a while of the original, original. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I think some of the pages in that had got the machine lettering on. I said to Pat, well, yeah, given that everything else would be machine lettered. Yeah, how come we ended up with hand lettering in 2018? And I'll confess, I was expecting some, uh, some Millsian story of him, you know, slamming his fist down on the desk and, and having a stand-up argument with the man about, you know, damn it all, he didn't care how much it cost. He said, he said, he said, uh, he said I wanted hand lettering because I thought it looked more dynamic than the machine lettering. And it turned out there was no difference in cost, so we went to hand lettering. All right, good. <laughs> okay. so, you know, so, you know, good. Good on Pat, you know, for, for, for making that choice because I think you know, it made a huge difference and was one of the reasons why the comic didn't really look like everybody else's comics because you've got, you know, exciting sound effects and huge, great eyes bursting out of speech balloons and stuff where, you know, with the best will in the world, that, that machine stuff, yeah, it's fine if you've got to cram a lot of text into a speech balloon or a caption, but it doesn't exactly make for the most dynamic, you know, death effects of people screaming. And um, and I suppose, uh, in a sort of roundabout way, would, would bring us on to Charlie's War, which was lettered that way. Yes. And which was one of the things, whenever I say, you know, that doesn't make for a very dynamic, you know, sound effect, one of the first things I see is you know, somebody in Charlie's War getting bayoneted and there's this weedy little balloon with a little typeset in it. And it's just, it's just not very exciting. Which is why I was so happy to take all the machine lettering off the uh, the first book of Charlie's War when Rebellion did the reprint. Did their 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 rebuild there? So that would 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 that have literally been like typed out and then just pasted onto the page? Yeah, I, I, I suspect it was, it was it was just literally they had a, they had a typesetting machine and just output the type in blocks and they they cut it up and stuck it onto the page in balloons. Um, right. I'm not entirely sure whether it was done onto the original artwork or done onto the stats. Right. You don't see it done it as photostats. You don't see a lot of original Charlie's War artwork knocking about, and I, but I don't recall seeing any with that machine lettering on, so I'm wondering whether they did it onto photostats because Pat had a chunk of what ended up being the first volume of the Titan Charlie's War edition, 
re-lettered by hand, which John Aldrich, oddly enough, did. Right. And I've seen photos of people's original art, you know, on comic art fans and stuff, of Charlie's War Pages with the John Aldrich lettering. And it looks to me like Titan had that redone onto uh, Joe Colquhoun's original art. And so either they stuck it over the top of the machine lettering or the machine lettering wasn't there in the first place. They did it onto photostats, I'm not sure. But, um, but, but there are pages of, uh, of, of, of Joe's original Charlie's War art knocking about that I know saw print in battle with machine lettering, but are the pages that are the, the physical original pages have the John Aldrich hand lettering pasted on Right. Uh, in, in place of in place of the machine stuff. So I'm, I'm and that to be honest is how I ended up doing the um doing the, the Charlie's War book. Um there was there was a certain amount of griping from from some corners about about you know about messing with the classics. But um but rebellion were in a bit of a bind with that, to be honest with you, because I they were determined to to produce the best looking volume that they could for that for those Charlie's War books. And they they put a lot of effort into cleaning up the artwork. But the problem was that they had three different sources um, for artwork for the for the artwork. Right. Um, I don't think they had access to much in the way of the original art, but they had the films. I think they had the films for the very well regarded Titan issues, uh, Titan collection, which was pretty good. There was a, a French edition, and then I think there was a handful of pages that they that they just couldn't source anywhere else. That just had to be scanned from the from the comic and do the best they can. But the problem that then presented them with was there with was that they got some pages. The French one had French lettering clearly that had to be removed, so you ended up with empty speech balloons. Yeah. Some pages, some pages from the Titan edition had got John Aldrich's hand lettering in them, and some pages that had come from the comic had got the machine lettering on them. Oh, right. And so, 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 they, so they presented with, with two choices: either you had to just go with whichever set of pages gave you a consistent lettering style and not worry about the quality of the art, you know, the actual quality of the reproduction of the art. But if you're going to concentrate on picking at those three sources, if you've got a choice, always pick the one with the best quality artwork for reproduction. You're going to end up potentially with one three page episode with three, well, one page with no lettering on it at all, one page with machine lettering and one page with a John Aldrich's hand lettering. So, you know, obviously this presented a problem and, uh, and Keith Richardson asked me if I would be interested, knowing that I've done this this um, this work on Hookjaw a, a couple of years previously, if I'd be interested in doing something similar to Charlie's War and producing a, a digital lettering style that would sit comfortably with um, the hand-lettered pages by John Aldrich. And basically anything that they didn't have a hand-lettered page for, I redid the lettering uh, in a style that would hopefully not look two odds with uh, with John's with John Aldrich's hand lettering. Oh right, okay. I think I've got it now. So you're actually you're also deliberately trying to do something that is sympathetic with John Aldrich's originals. Yeah, because I mean in some cases um there was a, there was a couple of episodes in there where they had because they were they were all more or less I think there were sort of three or sometimes four page episodes of Charlie's well, as often as not three. Um you might have um the opening spread would, would have John's hand lettering on it, but then the, the page that followed it would have the machine lettering. And so I, I didn't want it to be sort of a, a smack you in the fact I couldn't, you know, completely reproduce John's uh, John's hand lettering style digitally because you just can't do that. But I spent uh, I, I spent quite a long time. I think I I manually traced um, in software about three dozen of John's hand-drawn balloons. 
So I've got about 36, 40 of those of varying sizes and shapes. And then I'd, I'd sort of developed this. I'd taken a, a one of Comic Craft's um, hand uh, sort of lettering fonts, um, which it's got a, a, it had got some of that tall, thin character of Tom Frame and John Aldrich's lettering style. Uh, and found that if I sort of ever so slightly tweaked the proportions, it uh, it wasn't a bad match at all um, for, for for John Aldrich's lettering. So with a combination of, of sort of thieving a selection of John's balloons and um, and, and, a, and a digital type style that, that didn't look a million miles from the lettering um, in, on the hand lettered pages, I was able to go in and and so I mean I'd say there was a there was a tiny amount of art retouch because I didn't. Because I needed to keep the size of the type more or less the same size as John's letter, hand lettering. I couldn't make it bigger or smaller. Um, because the size of the, the text was fixed, it meant that the size of the balloon, you couldn't have vast balloons with huge amounts of space around them because that wasn't how John did the lettering, which meant I'd create a new balloon with the right text in it and matching John's style. But it wouldn't always completely cover the old machine balloons. Right. So I could sit on top of the artwork, but there'd be a bit of the machine balloon poking out of one side of it. And I didn't want to enlarge the balloon to cover it up because that would either give you an uneven text size or you'd get this huge amount of space around the edge of the balloon which wouldn't look in keeping with the other stuff. So I literally had to basically call up the original artwork file and draw over, just try and you know, sort of sketch in a bit of background art to make it look like the, uh, the, the, the original balloon wasn't there, which... <laughs> Right, I see. I understand. And and this presumably now you can do that. You're doing all this just to produce it as another layer on top of the artwork, as as opposed to having to yes. print it out on sticky stuff and stick it on and and so on. And the the second and third yes, books from Rebellion of the Charlie's War reprints, were you in those as well, or was it not needed? No, because by that by that stage, battle had gone to hand lettering as ah, well. Right. So. Um... It, it was. It was basically. The, it was the. I think it was about halfway or two thirds of the way through the first book. It switches to all hand lettering. Right. But okay. um, but that but that first two that first two thirds of volume one. And because I say this thing of trying to source files from different several different sources as well, gave them this odd mix. To say of the French pages, which had had which had got empty speech balloons because the, yes. French, the French text had been lifted and there was just an empty speech balloon. You'd got the scans from the original comics with the little typeset balloons and then you've got these ones that i'm pretty sure uh, pat said that he had insisted when titan did their first reprint of the, the early charlie's war having as much of it relettered as possible and i suspect given that i think it was done on the original artwork that the pages that weren't relettered were the pages they couldn't locate original art for right so you had a handful of you know, of machine lettered pages simply because they weren't able to physically lay their hands on the original pages to change the lettering. So, so you've got, you got this sort of odd mix and, and, and my job was basically trying to even it out so they all looked vaguely consistent and, uh, and of one sort of piece. Okay. And going back to the 2000 AD guys, I mean, obviously, if you, if you mention 2000 AD letters, I think everybody probably thinks of Tom Frame first. What was their process like then compared to what you do now well i mean it was it was it was very um very labor intensive i mean it was it was literally uh you know editor sends editor gets script editor sends script to artist artist sends pages to editor editor sends page page pages and edited script to the letterer who would then literally you know letter it all onto these little bits of sticky back paper cut them out 
stick them on the page, and then usually they add in uh, those little details will be added in with white paint, um, and then they just draw the line, the line, the outline around it. You know, Tom, Tom Frame was was legendary for lettering his uh, lettering his pages in the pub. Yes. Um, which, which, which may well have been a contributing factor to the infamous Steve Dillon missing story, uh, missing pages story from uh, City of the Down, because uh, you know, Steve liked to go to the pub and Tom liked to go to the pub. Um, and I'm, I'm almost certain that the story goes that the, the, the reason the pages were in the pub was because Steve had taken them to Tom for lettering and having finished it, they said, oh, well, let's have one more for the road then. You know, fast forward to Saturday morning and Steve wakes up at home minus his pages of artworks. Yes. <laughs> Famously has to recreate them over a weekend, and then the pub yes. ring him. The pub ring him on Monday and tell him they found the portfolio. <laughs> you, you, you left your pages, mate. But yeah, so um, well, yeah, it's been very. I mean, to be fair, I, I can letter in the pub as well, but it just involves doing it on laptop. I mean, yeah. uh, and it is you know every once in a while people sort of say, oh, you know, don't don't you know, don't you think hand lettering, you know, should you miss you know the days of hand lettering? And I, I would disagree that hand lettering has a lot of character. But the turnaround times now on comics are so tight. You know, it, it's such a fast process now. Um, nobody wants nobody wants to, to take the time to add that extra time onto their production process. Um, and also, if you think about it, um, it's a swine to do corrections on. And it makes, you know, if you're then going to um, to license somebody to do a foreign language reprint, it's an awful lot easier if that lettering is just sitting on a digital layer in a, desktop publishing file to change it to French or German or whatever than to actually have, have to erase ink lettering from the uh, from the boards or from scans of the boards to try and, and then drop in new lettering in a foreign language and so it's just it just it's easier from uh, and more convenient from a production point of view and obviously it doesn't involve physically shuffling huge numbers of pages around in the post and the intended delays that come with that so it's you know I won't, I won't, I won't, you know, I won't disagree that certain, there has been a certain loss of, of character right? Um, moving to digital. But the, the plus side is, you know, it's faster, it's cheaper, and it makes things a lot easier down the line. And, you know, in, in a sort of tight turnaround, quite low margin business like comics, if you can save a few quid here and there and it makes your comic more viable, well, you, know, you can't really argue with that. If it's just with that and no comic, then fine, you know, do the on a computer. Sure. And apart from Tom Frame and John Aldridge here, are there any other names from 2000 AD lettering then or now that you think really stand out that we should look out for? From, the, from, from my era of 2000 AD, you know, I mean, given that it's all my era, but from the, 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 this, this sort of, you know, my sort of formative 2000 AD years, um, I always, always adored um, Steve Potter's lettering. Right. Um, Particularly, go go look at Nemesis uh, and you know, the alien voices that he did on Nemesis, um, and especially Nemesis Book Two, which I know is, is for some reason unloved, but because uh, Kevin O'Neill didn't do it. But um, it's he's got they've got talking spiders in Nemesis Book Two, and if you go and have a look at it, the spider speech balloons have got webs. Right. All the speech all the speech all the speech balloons have got spider webs, and they anchor to the panel borders. And even, you know, as a kid, not paying that much attention to, to lettering, that was just like, wow, that's really cool. Um, you know, and I've, I've looked at it as best I can. I've never seen an original page of that art. But I've looked at it as best as I can. I'm pretty sure that that was Steve Potter that did that. And it wasn't sort of, um, you know, it wasn't uh, Redondo drawn them in and just left a space for the lettering to be put into. I'm pretty sure that was Steve's idea. And um, he was so inventive, uh, you know, and he did, did just so much work as well. But... Um, 
well, to be honest with you, and most an awful lot of the strontium dogs, I was surprised when I was reading through the rest of the case files. Uh, and, you know, later strontium dogs, it was almost exclusively done by um, by Gordon Robson. And obviously this one's uh, done by, uh, by John Aldrich, but, but most of the, the classic stuff, um, you know, when, when you move past this into Death's Head and stuff like that, it's all done, it's all done by Steve Potter. It was a phenomenal letter. Um, I'm, going, I'm going to politely decline to discuss modern letterers okay. only because I, I, I inevitably forget to mention somebody and then feel terrible about it. Right. Um, you know, I really... I, you know, it's just I, I, it's 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 one thing to talk about guys who are either retired or have been dead for twenty years. It's another thing to talk about people who you know, and then suddenly, oh God, I didn't mention. You know, so I'm I'm going I'm going to politely you know, decline. And if you say something nice about something one person has done, and then neglect to say that you know the same nice thing about another person, they might take the hump. And it's just okay. a, it's a bit of a it's a bit it's a bit of a minefield, and I'm not very good at it. So so I will politely gloss over gloss over that one just for fear of of, of offending my my fellow letterers. To be honest. Well, let's get you out of that minefield into let your own letter in for 2000 AD because you have lettered in the Prague, I think, Jim. Yes, yes. Um, since the 2019 Christmas special, um, right. you know, the end of year Prague, uh, I was I was invited to. I mean, that was that. I mean, again, you know, every, everything's back to, to be, being sad because unfortunately, um, I was invited to do that um, because Ellie Deville was really very unwell, um, and I, mean, I didn't realise quite how unwell she was. You know, I, I, there was a part of me thought, well, you know, I'll just be I'll just be keeping her seat warm, but sadly, she was uh, she was in very very sort of um, late stage cancer, I think, and, and she was working right up, literally right up until the end. Um, but when they did the news, she wasn't going to be able to, to do any more. Uh, apparently, Matt was trying to get hold of me at Thought Bubble that year, 2019 Thought Bubble. Um, but I managed to miss him. So I got I got home from Thought Bubble, having had a lovely convention, to uh, to an email from Tharg saying, uh, can, can you can you do us one strip a week for 2008 and one a month for the magazine? And I was like, uh, oh, I don't know. I'll have to think about it. But <laughs> um, and I and I had I had actually I had actually done one. I had one 2008 credit prior to that. Um, which, by by a happy happy coincidence, was actually uh, an episode of Strontium Dog, um, and I wasn't I wasn't at that point in, under any in, in, had any sort of uh, expectation that I'd, I'd, I'd do another 2008 gig. Uh, what had happened? I, I got a I got a phone call in the middle of the morning. I don't know where Matt got my number from. To be honest with you, it was you know, mid morning one Tuesday, I think. Um, I get a phone call from Matt, and basically says, um, "Could you do an emergency fill in?" They like sort of today or tomorrow at the latest um i later found out from talking to simon it was uh, it was simon boland was supposed to be doing it and he had to be rushed into hospital with a dicky appendix and, and literally you know was unable to do it um and at that stage i honestly thought that was going to be my my, my only 2000 ad gig and i but you know i thought well, i could be philosophical about it was my only credit in 2000 ad as a as a, as a letterer is on a wagner is quera strontium doc story i'll take it you know but um <laughs> Everybody would, you know, yes. Then, then, you, know, you know, but it was then you know, sort of the uh, fast forward three or four, then might need me five years, good lord. Um, you know, I get this email from Matt and says, you know, do you, do you want to come on board? We've got we've got stories for you in the, the end of year prog, and it'll be a regular go going forward from there. So, yeah, it's been um, that's a little dream come true. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't, I can't imagine, you know, sort of dialing up a time machine and going back and telling the, uh, you know, the, the 10 year old me that was blown away by prog 104 you know that, that 
40 years later, you know, his name would be on those pages. It's a, it's a, Astonishing, I, I yes. constantly have to remind myself that it's real, you know. It's, <laughs> and I listened to you on the Awesome Comics podcast talking about comic book lettering. Um, you've got some words of advice for uh, new writers and artists, I think, to help the letterer. Is that right? I, I'll be honest with you, I for, I've forgotten what I said. <laughs> I seem to remember something about for artists to try and leave the top third of the panel. Um, yeah, um, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And P, uh, PJ, um, PJ Holden has, has said this repeatedly. He says, he basically says, you know, you can, and it's always very helpful if when the artist is doing the, you know, the thumbnail roughs or even the pencils to actually sketch in speech balloons. But PJ says he doesn't do that anymore. He literally just basically makes sure the top 25 to 30% of every panel is dead space. Right. Because, you know, speech, speech balloons, as far as I'm, I'm in a tradition on this, wherever possible, speech balloons go to the top. They're balloons, they float. You know, they, I think they should sit at the top of the, of the panel wherever possible. And so, you know, yeah, if you, if, you, if you just do that, you're fine. And, um, you know, and, and, and for writers, it's... Again, it's, it's really easy. You know, it's 25, 30 words of balloon, no more than three balloons to a panel. It might have been Anthony Johnston, I think, um, said he approaches it slightly differently, but it's, then it's, it's in his case, it's literally just a case of saying, well, okay, three balloons a panel, six panels a page, 18 balloons a page. Right. You know, and that, that and all that means, and all that means is if, you, if you've got one panel with seven balloons, it make sure you've got another one with either none or one. Um, you know, as long as it comes out to 18, or whatever you know, and it's like you know, obviously any of these rules are not sort of you know cast in stone. But if you if you find yourself looking at a page and thinking, you know, I don't think you know that's a bit of a horrible balloon placement, or why is that balloon covering up that bit of artwork or stuff? If you have a look at it, it's usually one of two reasons. One, there's too many words in it, and so you know it just doesn't fit in the space available, and that's why it's covering up. Or two, the artist hasn't left the top third of the panel as dead space, so there's nowhere else for them to put it. So yeah, if, if, if you if you if you want your yeah, you know, th- those are rules to follow. If you don't want the lettering to cover up all your lovely artwork, basically. And when it comes to lettering itself, I know you've got some advice and uh, resources on your own website about lettering, um, which has got those two words in it that uh, are a no-no for comic books, aren't they? Yes, yes, I, yes, I, yes. I, probably on a on a family podcast, probably shouldn't explain how that one is, but just you have to be very careful using some words because letters can close up slightly, especially when you're doing things in all caps. And so, so some perfectly innocuous words can look quite, quite off colour um, once they've, they've, they've hit the printed page as a, as a, as a bit of dialogue. You, if, you, if you Google, Jim, you don't have to, don't have to, to, to do my, 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 my slightly rude, my rude pun. If you, if you Google Jim Campbell lettering blog, you'll find it straight away. It's, it's, uh, it comes up fairly near the top of the, the Google searches. And yeah, there is a big resource on that. Although I should just say, I mean, I have been trying to update that. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of a walk through a six, six different articles walking through the lettering process from getting the script and, and formatting it in a way that will make it easy to letter from right through to, you know, setting your type and doing your balloons and your sound effects and your captions and all the rest of it um i think i mean it's probably eight or nine years since i wrote that and the software's been updated and i keep starting to do an updated version of it and then obviously never having time to finish it because i'm always lettering comics um so i will just say um um and it is largely partly because um, you know I, I know fairly well, and he's a friend of mine. Is that uh, that Nate Picos of Blambot, who makes, who might be known to people, produces 
yeah, him and Comicraft, Rich Darkens Comicraft, are basically the go-to for lettering fonts. Mm. Um, but Nate's got a huge book on lettering comics coming out anytime. I think it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. And I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you, it's worth me updating my blog now because what Nate doesn't know about lettering isn't worth knowing. And I suspect literally anything that I could put up on my blog will be in Nate's book. So, um, so just sort of, if, if, if that's your interest and you want an up-to-date version of, 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 the, of the best advice on, on how to go about lettering comics digitally, I would strongly recommend, recommend popping on to Amazon and just popping Nate Picos's name in there and it'll, his book will come up for pre-order. Um, so it's, it's about, as I said, it's about 256 pages long, so it's, uh, it's, it's fairly comprehensive. Excellent. Well, I will try and put some of those links in the show notes for this episode, including uh, clintflickerlettering.blogspot.com. There, I got away with it. Um, but also, <laughs> also Nate's book. Let's turn you back to the pages of Journey into Hell with Strontium Dog, with Johnny and Wolf and the Gronk. Any particular favourite moments or episodes that we haven't touched upon yet for you, Jim? The, the, uh, well, the, 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 the River of Fire um, stuck in my mind as a, as a, as a young lad. Because um, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's just you know, it's it's such a great idea, and it's it's, it's a hell of a cliffhanger. You know, yeah. they've been absolutely burnt. <laughs> they've gone out in this boat. It's just the boat's just caught fire. They've been burnt to a crisp. You know, it's it's you know, Carlos doing his absolutely lovely thing, um, which then obviously leads if you flip to the the the, um, the spread that follows it. Uh, just the quality of the drawing is amazing. Um, you know, when he drags himself out of the. Uh, out of the the, the, the rib, Johnny Dragons out of the river of fire. I mean that that so those, those hands are just the the quality of the draftsmanship. The hands are just absolutely fantastic. Um, and I thought you know thematically it, it feels a little bit like that uh, that spread from City of the Damned. Yeah, uh, you know when Dreads had his eyes put out. It's got it's got that kind of sort of you know so tough you can't you can't do anything that will stop him sort of vibe to it. Um, and then it's unnecessary about chewing through, you know, plot an exciting moment after exciting moment, because the very next spread you hit after that is the um, first horseman of the apocalypse. It is, yes, yes, on the desert of the dead. Which is, yeah, which is just astonishing. You know, you've got those, those bizarre, you know, black, inky, swirly panel borders. You've got this very non-standard layout. And then, you know, right-hand side, you've got the whole height of the page. This, you know, figure on his armoured, freaky, fork-tongued horse with his massive scythe and um without wishing to get ahead of the of the grail page that one's it okay. and the worst thing is that that came up for sale a couple of years ago oh. and i didn't buy it oh no <laughs> you know i mean to be fair it wasn't it wasn't long after carlos had died and uh, obviously i think a lot of people realized there were no more carlos pages coming and so all the prices went up and it was a lot of money i yes. mean it was a lot of money and i but i did look at it and had to have a quiet little weep because you know that one had been burned into my brain since the age of 10 and uh, and suddenly there it is and you can buy it and it's you know and of course obviously being a not only a double page spread but a double page spread with a logo you know, they those always go for extra. But if you can get one with a story logo on it, um, yes. You know, and that was just you know, just fantastic. Is that that's the start of part eight? I think, isn't it? Desert of the Dead. Hang on a second. Yeah, so we just check. I actually wrote the seven. And just to go back to part yes, part, part yeah. eight, yeah, yeah. And just to go back to part seven, I mean, in terms of moments for Johnny Alpha in his whole whole comic book career, that moment of him crawling out of a, of the. Uh, the Lake of Fire, where Carlos has done, 
I don't think he's used outlines at all there on his drawing no, page. No, you, yeah, it's it's, a, it's just an astonishing piece. It's it just, is it's, absolutely you know, remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, that, 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 those, those hands are just a fantastic bit of drawing. And then you know, on top of that, you know, like you say, you've got you've got your hero burned beyond all recognition, hauling himself out of, out of a river of fire by nothing but force of will. It's a hell of a thing for a ten-year-old. It's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. So let's go on to the twelve page page game. Um, so we'll start with the double page spread at the part, the start of part seven, Desert of the Dead, with the first yeah. horseman. So we're going to grant you that one virtually, uh, although we can't get you the real one, I'm afraid, Jim. Questions about it? Would you want it in the black and white, or was it? I presume was that a colour spread? Well, this is the thing. I'm not. I'm a bit. I'm slightly bemused, to be honest with you, because it's um, the very early pre. Well, the pre good paper color pages um are grayscale in yes. this trade um but these colored spreads are just line work which makes me wonder if carlos didn't do the color even though it was um it was say it was the, the inverted commas good paper by that stage and and some people some artists were doing their own full color work um i'm wondering if they, if Carlos didn't colour his spreads. I think Tom Frame did an awful lot of colouring on these things. Um, and that's why the, the line work is available. The, the black and white, the original artwork I saw was black and white, and I think I prefer it in black and white. I think um, as much as the colour made an impression on me as a kid, it, it's if it wasn't coloured by Carlos, and I don't think it was, I think I'd rather have it without. You know, Carlos was a fine artist in colour, but if he if he intended it, if he inked it as if it was going to be done in black and white, I'd take it in the black and white, I think. Right. Okay, well, we will grant you that. Um, now, it does have, obviously, uh, or has it originally appeared, it does have the Strontium Dog logo on the, on the page uh, as well, although strangely not printed in my... Yeah, I noticed that's a bit strange, but uh, yeah. Yeah, in my black and white version of the uh, agency files. What about the rest of the lettering on the page? Would you want it, if you were to own it, with or without the lettering? I will say, I, I, the, I saw it with the lettering. Even though the, that, that, you know, that adhesive back paper, it, it goes a little bit transparent and stuff. It, yeah, I'd, take, I'd, I'd absolutely take it with the lettering. Um, right. it, it's, it, it makes it it makes it feel like uh, like like a page out, the page out of the comic. Do you know what I mean? It's like that is. I will confess the one the one sort of thing I would bemoan from you know the, the lettering going digital is that when you buy original art, it doesn't have the lettering on it anymore. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't I don't buy a lot of original art, which is why I think if I if I if I I know that if I did indulge. I'd get the bug and I'd never stop and I'd end up with a huge stack of original art and no idea, not enough walls to put it on. So I, I tend to not sort of, I mean, I, I, I own two pieces of, of, of original art. Some artists have done bits for me and that's lovely, but I own two pieces that I've bought, um, you know, sort of in the marketplace. Um, I have Simon Davis's very, very last Sinister Dexter. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, okay. And I have a page of uh, Cam Kennedy's Star Wars art, uh, oh. one of the dark em- one of his Dark Empire pages um, that he auctioned a few years ago. This was the first page of original artwork I ever bought, and I actually bought it by accident because um, <laughs> right. I didn't I didn't buy I didn't buy original art, uh, you know. But um, Cam was auctioning it for. Um, 
uh, an eye care charity because Cam's had problems um, yes. as he's got older with his eyesight uh, and for quite a long time he prevented from drawing at all uh, and he auctioned this to benefit this charity that was researching the specific condition that he'd got and I looked at it I saw it on he I saw his Twitter account tweeted about it um, and so I looked at it on eBay and I thought that's cheap oh cool you know there's, there's not long left to run on that so I'll see if I can bump up a bit so I whacked a hundred quid onto the bid price to try and bump the price up uh, went to bed and the next morning woke up to an email telling him I bought the artwork. Uh. And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, well, to be honest with you, I'd have paid more than that if I was intending to buy it. So I duly paid it, received this page, paid another 150 quid to the charity because I was embarrassed by how little I paid for it. This absolutely gorgeous line and wash page of Cam Kennedy full colour artwork arrives. And I have to confess, there was a little part of me that was disappointed that it didn't come with the acetate overlay ah, that had right. Todd, Klein's, Todd Klein's original <laughs> hand lettering on it. And that seemed really churlish that I'd picked up this gorgeous piece of original Cam Kenny, one of my favourite artists, Star Wars art. And there was still a little bit of a boo, no lettering. No Todd Klein. Oh, dear. OK, so I guess you don't have a Carlos page then. I don't, unfortunately. Um well, let's give you that double-page spread, and let's let you pick another one as well. Any other of the images or covers that you would want to take? Without, I'd, I'd, I'd take the. Is it the very next episode? I might just the the, the double-page spread. I keep on one of these spreads, but they, they really did walk my fragile little mind with all four of the horsemen. That's a hell of a piece, isn't it? It is. It's the next much, one. Not, yes, not with Johnny on it, but uh, yeah, I mean that's. You know, and, and like I say, you, you've got this, this ink style that wasn't like anything else in the comic and these crazy layouts and, I mean, just that huge, those four horsemen just across the top, breaking the logo either side of them. It's, it's a fantastic page. I mean, it's visually, it's just, you know, it's just, I'm just, I'm just flicking through this now, you know, and you flip, flip the page from that and you've got the, the following page, which is again, you've got those, those horse figures and that big close-up with the screaming skull and you just like, you know, wow, what you... You know, this thing only cost me eight p when I was <laughs> when I was a kid. You know. Bargain. Okay, so we'll grant you that double page spread as well. And as you say, over the page, it just gets keeps keeps going and be so fantastic. So that's two double page spreads uh, from Journey into Hell, which now become yours in the virtual art gallery of Mega City Book Club. I was going to pick one of those myself, so I'll actually I'll drop back to page um, to part seven, and I'll take Johnny crawling from the. Uh, the fire of, of of the lake. Yeah, I mean that's. I guess I, I could I, I could I could honestly. I mean I could pick just about any page from here. You know, I mean we haven't even touched on the, the Mr Sun and Mr Moon, and there's such just wonderful designs. And at, at this point, the whole thing is so surreal. It's uh, you know it, it does sort of. I, I kind of wonder, to be honest with you, whether whether John and Alan sort of wrote themselves into a corner as it kind of gets, it got, got, gets weirder and weirder, and then just just kind of stops. Right, and I, I will freely concede if I had if I had one criticism of it, it really does just you know it just keeps getting weirder and weirder, and you've got these wonderful you know you've got you've got the weird brothers later yes. on, and so that's a that's another spread I'd cheerfully take. You know, I mean that's that's as classic Carlos as you can get. You know, um, but then they finally get to meet Satan, and it's sort of it feels a bit like you know it happened a lot with strips of this era. It kind of feels like the, the editor just sort of said, yeah, wrap it up now. Okay. Yeah, and it, you know, and it ju- and it does just kind of stop. They they find out that Satan's this this old guy who's you know created a world and it hasn't come turned out quite like he planned it to, um, and Johnny basically bullies him into destroying it, and they all go back to to Earth. And it feels like a, you know it, it does feel a bit sort of curtailed. I mean, you know, it's had fifteen episodes, but it's not you know, 
it does sort of have this sort of rather abrupt ending to it. And I, I sort of wonder if maybe it was a bit too weird. And maybe, I don't know, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't have anything to back this up. If maybe it wasn't that popular because it's like 60 issues before Strontium Dog's in the comic again. Oh, right. That okay. wraps up. Yeah. Yeah, it takes quite a long break. Uh, and when it comes back, it's very much back into the straight sci-fi spaghetti western mode with Death's Head. You know, and you've got your little frontier town and Johnny calling people out, and it feels much more on sort of familiar sci-fi western ground. Like, I wonder if it was sort of rested because because maybe it was a little bit too strange. For, too strange and too know, weird. Average, average average nine and ten year old boy <laughs> to be these bizarre moon moon headed men encouraging people to you know, mobs to tear each other to pieces to get golden tickets and it's uh, you know which is the bizarrest take on Woody Wonka I think I've ever read so uh. <laughs> but it does rattle along for 15 episodes just 15 episodes it is gorgeous on every page uh, it's got wonderful lettering with John Aldridge and it's just it's just um, fantastic stuff to go back to it's, it's terrific fun and it's exciting I'd say it doesn't doesn't let you catch your breath it just bangs along and every every time they resolve something a new and weirder thing is coming along and it, it's just it's just it, it kind of it's it's sort of it just it's it's exemplifies the, what, what exhilarated me uh you know as a, as a as a little lad when i first started reading the comic Absolutely. And as we said, it is available in the Agency Case Files 1. At the moment, only on digital, nine ninety nine. If you want a hard copy, you're going to have to go to eBay to tr- look for Agency Files 1 or the Strontium Dog, the early cases, or the Hachette hardback, which are out there on eBay. Uh, great stuff, Jim. What what fun. Journey into hell. The, early, the first year. That's been fantastic. Yeah. First year of Strontium Dog. Isn't it great? Yeah, so, it's superb. It's, uh, you know. And it's guest projects. Now, we mentioned some of your uh, work already. Is there anything you're working on now or coming up that you can tell us about, Jim? Uh, I have to come across as slightly evasive because I, I work on so many books. Sure. If I, go, if, I go, if I go, buy this, it's ace, then um, invariably somebody else will say, why didn't you plug my book in, bastard? So um, <laughs> I, I have to, to be a little bit cagey. And, and also... <laughs> It sounds really trite, and but I, I'm genuinely not making this up. I, I'm in the fortunate position of not having worked on a bad book for at least five years. Uh, I, I, you know, and people that, that's not a, a hard cut off, and people go back and find something that's more than five years old and say, "Oh well, we clearly hated working on that." It's just that you know, every once in a while, a project comes along, your heart's not really into, uh, not really in it, but. I have been incredibly fortunate in as much as every single book and every single story that I've worked on for some considerable number of years now, I have thoroughly enjoyed and would recommend to anybody. Um, so it's literally all I can say is if you see my name on a book, I promise you I enjoyed doing it and I'm fairly sure that you'll enjoy reading it. And I can't pretend this is some wonderful sort of, you know, quality control filter of mine. I'm just fortunate that I, um, I've sort of, settled in with a, 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 a sort of a, a roster of editors who keep giving me wonderful books um so yeah if you see if you see my name on it buy it it's 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 all good i promise 
even if you don't think you'll like it, I promise, you know, there's plenty of books I work on where you know, they, uh, the concept doesn't particularly appeal to me or, you know, it doesn't leap out at me as being, oh, this is the sort of thing that I would read, you know, but I'm doing, you know, I'm doing, currently doing uh, one of the books I'm currently literally at the moment doing is, uh, is a book called Fence, which is about, um, about a, a, a boys' school. It's, 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 it's great because I do a lot of young adult stuff, and this has taken its cues from. I didn't know this stuff's hugely popular in manga. Uh, the, the the sports story, which you can't shift for love and money in the UK, is about a, a fencing school for boys, and it's to borrow a phrase of Neil Gaiman's, it's gayer than a tree full of monkeys on nitrous oxide. Um, it, it's fantastic fun, but you know, and that's the thing. If you said to me, you know, would you enjoy a book like this? I wouldn't have touched it with a barge pole. But because I don't have any choice but to read it, I read it. It's fantastic, you know. <laughs> I, I, it, it sounds sort of you know, trite and isn't isn't the world wonderful? But you know, there's there's plenty of things to get to, you know, get worked up and miserable about. Uh, and this isn't one of them. It's 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 wonderful. So yeah, I would just say, you know, if you see if you see a book my name on it, give it a go. But especially 2000 AD because they remain my first my first true love in comics. Excellent stuff, Jim. Well, thank you so much for your time this Saturday afternoon. Uh, this should be out next week. Um, will be episode, let me just check. This will be episode 157. Um, and it will be out, as I say, in just a week's time, hopefully, Jim. And I'm very grateful for you Excellent. giving up your time. No, it's been an absolute pleasure, Raymond. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a delight. And if I if I can, if I think of another thing that nobody else has ravaged on about, I might pop your email somewhere down the line, and we'll we'll have, we'll have do it again. Yes, some, some 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 other obscure bit of comic book from my from my childhood. Excellent stuff. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, all the details are on megacitybookclub.com. Please check out the links in the show notes, including ways you can donate to help Dave Evans' family and also see the marvellous art tributes that have been done in the uh, art competition on the forum. And follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and the 2000AD forums, or email me as Jim did at mcbcpodcast at gmail.com to get in touch if you have a book you want to come on and discuss. And that'll do us, Jim. Thank you very much. Fantastic. No, thank you, Amy. It's been lovely. And until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me. Thank you very much, Amy. Good night.